Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's podcast. There's no special announcements or anything this week, so let's just jump right into it. First up, Voltar just posted a video about how to change the batteries in your game cartridges, and this is something that's both handy and a really good way for beginners to start out who want to learn how to do some mods but don't want to jump into some of the more complicated stuff. So it was a very handy video in the typical Voltar style, and even though it has absolutely nothing to do with the video, it's still one of my favorite thumbnails he's ever done. So if you were looking for any of that info, especially if you were looking to just get started into modding, definitely check this one out. Next, My Life in Gaming just released part two in their documentary series, Analog Frontiers. And this one was concentrated on the original hardware restoration, as well as what you could expect with things going wrong and how long some of this stuff would last. And I'm really not doing it justice. I'm probably describing it as boringly as possible, but it was another really awesome documentary and it was cool to see everybody in it again. Uh, and I'm just really looking forward to more of these. I think Mark said that they'll be coming out a little bit sooner. Uh, or on a sooner schedule than one every six months or something. So uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing the rest of them. And I think he said there was many parts in all of this. I'm not sure if there was ever um, an official, like there's going to be two parts, 10 parts, whatever else. But uh, I mean, if they're all this good, I think we'll all enjoy watching every one of them. So please, please enjoy it. Please share it. This is definitely the perfect example of the quality of stuff that comes from my life in gaming that everybody could enjoy. Uh, the Analog Frontier is stuff that, you know, if you're a hardcore nerd and you want to see some of the cooler stuff that we all talk about, it's in there, but it's also something that you could watch with friends that aren't super into this that might gain a new appreciation seeing it from this perspective. So anyway, awesome documentary. Can't wait for part three. Steve from RetroTech just posted a video about recapping and testing the capacitors on a Sony BVM D24. Uh, as usual, anytime I talk about working on CRTs, I have to give the disclaimer that if you don't know what you're doing, there is a chance of death that's greater than zero, which to me means there's a chance of death, so be really, really freaking careful. Uh, the good news is, though, when you're talking about the input cards in Sony BVMs, as well as certain other monitors, as long as you unplug the power from the wall, it's perfectly safe to remove those input cards. Um, even the, uh, there's one or two in the BVMs where you, you unscrew it and you pull it out halfway and then you have to reach in and unplug a, a wire. That's also safe. As long, once again, as long as it's unplugged from the wall, then it really is easy to get this stuff out, which is very helpful for people who 
probably aren't comp uh, comfortable working on CRTs, but might be comfortable doing a cap replacement or would certainly be comfortable removing some cards, you know, bubble wrapping them and sending them to a modder. Uh, th this particular video was looking at specific input cards and Steve removed all of the caps and then tested each one and many of them were still good. And in fact, there was only a few notable ones that he's also found in other videos uh, or in other testing that were bad. And it kind of echoes the statements that Pat, the BVM tech, has always said, which is always great to have two different people coming at the same problem and find the same conclusion. In fact, that's the basis for all nerd research and science altogether. So I thought it was great that Steve took the time to do that. Um, also, uh, it kind of proves that you might not need to do a shotgun recap and, and do every single capacitor. And he also brought up the point that Sony had access to some capacitors that were very high quality that we might not be able to even get anymore. So depending on the hours of the monitor, the, the heat that it was involved in, you know, if it was 24 seven in you know, in an environment with lots of heat and all that stuff, you know, you might need to still replace all the caps or you might want to just leave them and just use the one or just replace the ones that were known as problematic. So I thought it was a really great experiment. Also, Steve found a different set of what he's calling the Sinister Six capacitors that are in the D-Series BVMs that he found pretty much always need changing. So if you have a D-Series, definitely check out his Patreon post. Uh, now, he made this one post public so that everybody, even if you're not a subscriber, could check it out because it's pretty good info and something that all BVM owners should consider. I believe this is an internal board, though, so you definitely want to be careful working on it. Uh, I can't remember where inside the monitor this board lies. So there are some places that are easier to get to that you could, that are, you know, you don't have to worry about as much as certain other places where you definitely want to discharge the monitor and be safe. So I would look into that, but at the very least, now uh, you're able to identify some capacitors that you should definitely change no matter what. Um, and, you know, check out that post and see if you like it because Steve does a lot of posts like this on his Patreon page. So if it's something that you feel like you'd be able to, to appreciate a lot of the info that's shared, maybe consider signing up. I think everybody by now has probably been bored to death hearing my perspective on Patreons, but I sign up for everyone that supports a creator that I like, and this is definitely, you know, Steve's definitely somebody that uh, I could vouch for. Uh, so check out the post, check out the video if you're interested in this stuff, or at the very least, you know, at least you now have the info of, once again, it's proven that not all capacitors need to be changed in these monitors, but there are definitely some that will always need changing every couple of years or every you know, th a few thousand hours of use or whatever else. So thanks to Steve for doing all the research. Analog just made a few announcements in regards to the second and supposedly final run of production of the NT Mini, and it caused a bit of controversy. So first, they said they're going to push the release date back from June or July to November. Um, I assume that's going to be at least in part to the delays you know, involving everything else that's going on in the world. Uh, but that's not really the, the controversial part. What is, uh, is that they listed a whole bunch of features. And the first one they list is an upgraded FPGA scaler and user interface, which all support a host of features present on the Super NT and Mega SG. Now, everybody that ordered one 
is probably very happy about this. Oh, hey, cool, I get a faster FPGA. Maybe that means they'll release the Super Nintendo and Genesis cores on this as well. It's one of their wink-wink, nudge-nudge, totally didn't come from us jailbreaks of this. You know, that's great, but what about the original owners of the Analog NT Mini that spent $500 on it? I don't believe there was an announcement that all of these new features would be ported to that. Is it just, you know, you've already given them your 500 bucks and that's it? Because that's not unfair, but that's certainly not how most other uh, most other established companies in the retro gaming scene work. You know, I always compliment Cricks on doing updates to products that are five or six years old. It would be nice to see some support given for a product that's $500. Um, also, they opened pre-orders on these, and now the pre-orders are closed. You can't get them anymore. You can't order these. So now they're announcing new features after you're not able to order anymore. And one of the things that's always really bothered me about analog and how they approach things is also, I guess, a good business tactic in that they seem to make, they seem to figure out exactly how many people want to buy one of these things and make just less than that. So there's always demand. It's, you know, they're always hard to get. They're always being scalped on eBay for a million times more than people pay for them. And while I believe the, the Mega SG has still been in stock, which is surprising and, and pretty cool, um, none of the other ones are, including the Super Nintendo version. You know, the, the, the NT Mini with the NES version has been sold out for a while. Uh, so I just, I don't know, it's, it's very frustrating and it's definitely deliberate because that's been their MO the whole time. Uh, and you know, I, I'm sure it also drives their competitors crazy, but I, their competitors have to be tipping their hat to them. Uh, believe the quote from Dave Mustaine, you know your worth when your enemies praise your architecture of aggression. I think that's perfectly fitting for this because I think every one of uh, the analog competitors in the scene has got to just respect how every time they release a product, they're able to put out these press releases that every tech blog, including ones that don't even cover retro, treat this as the second coming of anything electronic and everybody needs to check it out without questioning anything in those press releases. They just regurgitate it word for word. And then all of this hype is built up around it. And then you can't get them, which builds more hype. And, you know, I, I guess I guess if the goal is to be a successful business in retro gaming, then they're winning 100%. But if the goal is to provide products for people who have a whole bunch of cartridges, uh, their original controllers, and they just want an easy way to play those on their flat panel without dealing with scalers and mods and worrying about lag and all that stuff... Um, you know, one would argue that they're failing miserably because their products should be readily available to everybody and they're not. So that's an opinion. That's obviously not fact. You could look at this any way you would prefer. I'm just sharing my perspective on this because I've been highly critical of analog since since the first time I saw one of their beautifully carved wood cases that was held together by by vats of hot glue sold for $800 with the controller. And I think my... I th- think my critical analysis of all their products is absolutely deserved. If you spend a lot of money on something, you expect quality and hopefully you would expect support, which, you know, 500 bucks for an NT Mini, no no more firmware updates. And now this new one is getting it. I don't know. I hope I'm wrong, though. I hope there is going to be a firmware update for it and they just haven't announced it yet because they're too busy working on the promotion for this one. That's cool, too, but um, that's not 
that's not the narrative that they're creating here. So I'll leave it up to all of you to make your own decisions. I've obviously spoken my piece on this one. Uh, I'm sure people are going to completely disagree with me, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, check it out. Check out the post uh, if you'd like more info. And I guess let's wait to see what Analog has to say. John Linneman just posted an hour-long documentary on DF Retro about Final Fight. Now, I don't want to have any spoilers at all. I really enjoyed the documentary a lot, so I don't want to give anything away, but I do have a few things to add. Uh, I was really happy that John showed the work of Gabriel Pyron, who does the color hacks for Genesis and Sega CD that make the games look and feel a lot more like the arcade versions and are generally regarded as improvements in every way. Um, it's my strong opinion that if you're going to play Final Fight via a CDR or an optical drive emulator, then you should only be using Gabriel's patched version. Uh, obviously, if you enjoy playing on original CDs, then that's awesome too, and totally go for that. But if you're going to be using a backup of it anyway, you might as well use the patched one. I was also really happy to see John show the three-player hack that was made by the fan community uh, that I didn't even realize could be done. I talked about that a few months ago, and I believe that's... Uh, I think that should be able to work on the Mister as well. I haven't had any time to try it. Uh, so if you know anybody that's done a video or of it or anything like that, please post it. I'd love to see. I'm sure it works fine, but I'd still love to see it. Uh, and I also really enjoyed um, Mark from My Life in Gaming's cameo at the end to talk about the arcade one-up version. And I really agree everything with what he said and his thoughts on it. And, you know, I, I just think that those arcade one-up cabinets are so close to being good. And I just, I'm not even sure if the company themselves realizes what's missing from it. Um, years ago, when they first came out, somebody said that they, uh, a middleman, let's say, said that they were going to send me one to review, and then they never did. So my guess is they found out who I was and went, no, the first thing he's going to do is lag test it, and then the second thing he's going to do is point out everything that's wrong with it. So if he wants to review it, by his own. And to be honest, I would have if I had the space. I just, I don't have any space. I can't even put both of my arms out where I'm standing right now. So not going to, not going to buy a, you know, a cheap arcade cabinet just for that testing, but they do have the potential to be better. Um, also, uh, console kits, Justin from console kits has done a bunch of videos on them and said that they've been continuously improving with each release. And while the link I posted here is for 349 for the final fight cabinet, if you wanted it, um, check deals.consolekits.com. I talked about that a while back. I think home arcade deals is also a forwarding link for it where you could punch in the name of the arcade cabinet you want and it'll search around to see if any are on sale for you. So you would be able to get uh, a, a pretty significant discount in many cases. So overall, um, you know, I just, I loved, I loved the documentary. I, I really agreed with everything that everybody said in it, and it was just very enjoyable. Um, I also was incredibly impressed at the use of the phrase porntastic ponytail and the CDI jokes. So no spoilers. I'm going to let you find those for yourself. HiddenPalace.org just found an unreleased and thought to be lost version of Street Fighter Champion Edition for the Sega Genesis. Not this one. I'll get back to that in a minute. Uh, so apparently, when Street Fighter was released on the Super Nintendo, they had an exclusivity deal with Capcom and Nintendo, but Sega really wanted a Street Fighter game on their console because it was one of the biggest games in the world at that time. So I guess Capcom had talked to a third-party developer and got them to port the Champion Edition from the CPS-1 over to the Genesis. 
and it was even finished enough to be shown off at things like E3 and even to be sent to reviewers for it. But then I guess Capcom and Nintendo came up with the Street Fighter 2 Turbo version that had a bunch of other features, and now Sega wanted in on that as well. So they just completely scrapped the Champion Edition and got what we know of as the Special Champion Edition, which more matched what the Super Nintendo's second version of Street Fighter was getting. And it's kind of an interesting story, because while I don't quite remember that from when I was a kid, I do definitely remember the game being delayed, and it turns out it wasn't just confusing to kids, and it certainly is still confusing now, but even magazines back then were confused on it, and some even published their reviews of the unreleased Champion Edition as if it was the special Champion Edition. And there's even proof that Hidden Palace puts in uh, in their article that kind of shows that. So it was a really interesting thing to find out, and also apparently this was a ROM that had been floating around for a while that was dubbed just a hack or a bootleg or something, and people didn't really know where it came from, but it turns out it was leaked from the company that had made it. So it's, it's a really in-depth story. I summarized it as much as I could in this post for people that just kind of want to skip to the end and then download the ROMs for themselves. But if you're into this stuff at all, which I'm always, you know, really interested in history and especially anything game related, um, Hidden Palace did a great article on it. It's long. So, you know, to take a deep breath, get comfortable and get ready for it. But I enjoyed every word of it. And I guess Nostalgia Nerd also did a video uh, about this a few years ago that touches up to pretty much up to the point where they they found the version of it. I haven't seen the video yet, but it, uh, it comes um, highly recommended from trusted people. So hopefully the video is good. But I definitely would recommend checking out the link and, uh, and reading through the whole thing if you're interested in the full story. Just a quick update that pre-orders for the Rad 2X cables are now back open. These have been selling out really quick, so I wanted to let everybody know about it. The PlayStation ones already sold out, and the Saturn ones aren't available, but the rest of them, at least at the time that I'm recording this, are still up for pre-order. So uh, if you've been waiting on one of these, definitely jump on it now because they tend to sell out pretty quick. And also, a few people had reported that some of my links weren't working properly. So if anybody ever runs into that, I guess they said... You could add it to the cart, but then it was causing issues. I really try to always make people's lives easier, and you'd think I would be able to not mess up something as easy as a link, so I don't know what the heck happened, but if anybody has trouble, please let me know, and I'll try to make sure that all of my links all across all of RetroRGB and all the videos are, are updated and fixed to uh, so it's all working properly. So hopefully that was just a fluke, one or two things, and hopefully all the links are working fine, but either way, if you needed a Rad2X, now's the time to grab one. I just released a video that showed people how to use original consoles using retro gaming scalers on a VGA CRT monitor. Now, I always tell people any CRT is a great experience for classic consoles. Even if you just grab a cheap one off of Craigslist for free or 20 bucks or something and use composite video, CRTs are great for retro gaming no matter what the signal you use. You know, it's a very big misconception that I hate composite video. I think composite on a CRT looks awesome. Just don't plug it directly into a flat screen. However, um, if you're looking for a sharper signal, 
you can go hunt down an RGB monitor, which would be amazing, but not everybody has access to that, especially based on where you live. And even in many different regions of the United States, there are some places where you could look online and you could find some locally. And there are other large areas that they just, there were no big TV studios. So the, whatever was already there is gone and there isn't really a, a need or a place for any of this stuff to go. So it all disappeared. So if you want a sharper signal, you could use the methods I talked about in this video to use a VGA monitor to get a very close to R, you know, RGB PVM like experience for pretty much anything. Uh, the only thing that I used in this video that might be slightly different than yours is I uh, used this as an excuse to buy a brand new, new old stock VGA monitor. And the only difference between any one that you find on the side of the road even, um, as long as there's no burn-in or anything like that, it should be fine. And as long as there aren't too many hours and it's dim, it should be fine. Because with this brand new one, all I had to do was turn scan lines on and then turn up the brightness a little bit, not even a lot. But if you have an older VGA monitor that's worn, that's dimmer, you might not be able to turn the brightness all the way up. So it'll be pretty dim with scan lines on. But just because it doesn't look exactly like an RGB monitor doesn't mean it's not a good experience. Uh, I showed examples of both direct 480p in and 480p with scan lines. So please check out the video. I hope everybody liked it. Um, the only other thing to add as well is um, this will also work with any 480p signal. So whether that's the Mr., the analog console set to 480p, uh, you know, PlayStation 2, Dreamcast, any any modern console that could be set to 480p. If you want to, you could game on a VGA monitor. And if you're doing retro stuff, just add the fake scan lines and it should be exactly the same as in this video. The only reason I didn't include that is because that's all for another video. So hopefully you all enjoy it. And uh, I should have follow-up videos that involve VGA monitors within the next year, probably two separate videos on this. The developer behind the Super Game Boy 2 core for the FX Pack and FX Pack Pro has just posted another update with a ton of changes and bug fixes. Um, it really looks like this project is becoming a lot more stable. I thought it was pretty decent before, but um, I, I put it through its paces and did some testing and I thought it was running great. And another very cool thing is the MSU1 audio hack from QWERTY Moto is also working now. Uh, I believe QWERTY Moto is still ironing out a couple of bugs, but it is in its playable form. So uh, check out his post on that. But I was really impressed when I saw it and it was just really cool to be playing the new Link's Awakening soundtrack on the original game, honest, you know, all original Super Nintendo hardware. So uh, if you're interested in this, please check out the post and check out the video. I made it unlisted because I don't know what YouTube's algorithm does to, you know, minute long videos. You know, it didn't, those um, giveaway videos certainly didn't help. <laughs> so uh, I just left it unlisted figuring if anybody wants to check it out, they could just go right through the post. Uh, but I, I'm just really impressed with all this stuff. I mean, now you can play the entire Super Game Boy library, which means all original Game Boy and all of the black cart Game Boy Color games on your Super Nintendo using only the FX pack. You don't need anything else. So awesome stuff. Thank you to everybody involved. And please check out the link if you're uh, or in the video, too, I guess, if you want a demo of what it looks and sounds like. 
The Amiga emulator WinUAE has just gotten a pretty big update filled with a ton of bug fixes and additions, and they're also claiming that some of the emulation for the different chips is now cycle accurate, which is always a really impressive thing. Uh, so if you're an Amiga user and you want to jump into emulation, this really seems like a good time to try this one out. Uh, links are below, as well as the entire list of bug fixes and changes right in Vanessa's post. A friend of mine sent me a link to a really interesting project that uses a Raspberry Pi Zero to scale old computers uh, with only three milliseconds of lag added, which is pretty impressive. Um, now, I went to the forum and talked to the person behind the project, and they said that classic game consoles use too many colors in order for the same method to work, so we couldn't, in its current form, just use it to, you know, use it as a makeshift Genesis scaler or something like that. Um, and also, they hadn't tried it at all on the Raspberry Pi 4, which was disappointing because uh, if it was possible on the 4, that means you can get 4K scaling. So... I definitely recommend anybody that's into old computers check out the main GitHub as well as the forums and see if this project's compatible with any of the old stuff that you use, because it seems like a pretty cool and, and relatively inexpensive way to scale these computers, some of which have issues with standard retro gaming scalers as well. But I think it would also be awesome for any of uh, the amazing developers that I'm lucky enough to have listened to the show also check this out. Because if there's any possible way that a new piece of hardware could be built, that you could have a, let's say, a SCART input uh, stick on top of a Raspberry Pi 4 that outputs 4K with, you know, with only three milliseconds of lag. Heck, even if that board cost a hundred bucks, you're still talking now under $200 for a 4K scaler. And I think, the, at least in my opinion, the number one thing I would like to see in 4K scaling is shaders that match the look of the CRT in both the full mask, so horizontal and vertical lines, not just horizontal. And that's just preference. There's no right or wrong way to do that. I'm not saying you have to use that uh, in order for an accurate experience. I just think that there's so many of us out there that if we're going to take the time to do something like horizontal scan lines, why not try to make or try to get the detail of the original mask in there? Um, I showed these close-up shots in the video of, you know, uh, retro games on a VGA monitor. So um, even if you don't really care about that, maybe check out at the very least the opening so you could see how the different masks, um, I guess skim through the video as well, how there's a different distinctive look. And I don't think there's enough resolution in 1080p to really reproduce that. But there should be in 4K, at least for a lower line count, lower in air quotes here, because, you know, a 450 line monitor is still really nice. It's just, you know, it's not going to be as, as densely packed as a thousand line monitor, but I don't think you need that. And in fact, one would argue that a mid-range monitor like that might be might be better because then you could actually see the definition of the mask. Otherwise, it would all just blend together like a flat panel anyway. So anybody that's interested in this that might have the skills to take a look, even if you only have time to take a look and say, no, it's definitely impossible, or yeah, yeah maybe somebody else take a look, I would really appreciate it because I just, any kind of do-it-yourself project that could end up in 4K scaling with accurate CRT masks for scan lines, you know, for just uses stuff like Raspberry Pi, I think that's a pretty cool community-based project. So any of you smart people out there mind giving it a look, I would really appreciate it. And I, I believe everybody else probably would too, because this has the potential to be something awesome if it could even be done at all. 
Well, that's it for this week. As always, thanks so much to everybody that watches, listens, uh, participates nicely in the comments, and especially thank you so much to everybody that supports on Floatplane and Patreon, because it's your contributions that keep these videos, the podcast, the website, and all the behind-the-scenes stuff I'm involved in going. So thank you all so much, and I'll see you next week.